uh, are, it's Sunday morning, we've concluded our marriage conference on Friday night and Saturday. We had a marriage conference here at the church and Pastor Walls, uh, who was here with us this morning, um, ministered to us, challenged our hearts. And uh, for me and my wife caused us to reevaluate some things. And um, I mentioned to him, I think Saturday, the, um, the reality that when you think you have arrived and then you are, you bring somebody in and then you realize you haven't arrived and so much as a husband to work on um, and uh, just to be that husband that represents Christ well in, in my home. And so um, I've been thankful for the conference. I hope it was a blessing to you as well and, and prayerfully the things that we, we were taught and learned will, will carry on and have a, a life time impact on our homes and our families. Um, just a little bit about Pastor Walls as I introduce him. Um, again, we spend a couple of days with him, getting to know him a little bit. He is currently a, an elder at Grace Community Church uh, with Pastor John MacArthur. He is also the campus pastor at the Masters University. Uh, most recently, he had the privilege of discipling my son and uh, his new wife, and so they, um, and they're doing well. So we praise the Lord for that. And uh, uh, Pastor Walls has been pastoring, prior to that, had been pastoring 27 years in Alabama. Um, just a life of service to the Lord. And it's an honor uh, for us. I, I believe it's an honor for us to have him this morning. And he's going to come and preach the morning, word. Morning, Grace Church. Grace Bible Church of Hollister. Greetings from Grace Community Church in sunny Los Angeles. Uh, we're, I, I do bring you greetings from the Masters University and uh, my pastor and our president, Dr. John MacArthur. And I'm uh, so glad to be here. I had the privilege of visiting with uh, John and Gwen and their family in Nebraska uh, probably two years ago now. Uh, temperatures a little bit different than they are here. Uh, life a little bit different. And I was excited to see where the Lord had planted them and excited to be a part of your church family this week. I admire him and their service to Christ as a family. We're thankful to have uh, Jared and Alyssa down at the Master's University and about to have Olivia. And we're excited about that. And uh, we're just grateful. And uh, you may not know what a campus pastor does. I served as a senior pastor for 27 years in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, my wife and son struggle with Lyme disease and warm, dry air makes a difference. And uh, sitting on the board of the college and seminary for 15 years, I would uh, periodically make trips to California. And one trip four years ago, I brought my wife and son and they got off the uh, airplane in Los Angeles and their, uh, their ability, their capacity, their energy was obviously improved. And uh, three days, I watched them benefit from warm, dry air. Now, Alabama has warm air, but it is not dry air. And uh, that really does make a difference, and that really fostered a, uh, a pursuit to say, Lord, would you have us leave? I loved my church, and I believe they loved me, and it was a difficult transition. Um, but it wasn't hard to come to California you know you have 184 perfect days in the city of Los Angeles, number one in America. Number two is San Diego at 182 perfect days. That's 60 to 80 low humidity. I don't know what Hollister has, but John tells me it's always the same, and I imagine it's as good like ours. Alabama, 47 perfect days in Birmingham. <laughs> so it's a, it's a little bit different, but I'm grateful to be here as the campus pastor. It's my privilege. I like to say it this way. I'm the first one we've ever had. Um, I support Dr. John's desire to see the campus shepherded. Uh, I love young people. I'm a department of one. I have no authority and no boundaries. <laughs> and what that means, I have, have influence, and I support people with authority, whether it's coaches or faculty or staff, obviously students. I'm responsible for chapel. Uh, I love the Master's University. And I just want to say this. I love Christian education. It matters. Proverbs says, buy the truth and don't sell it. Get wisdom. Wisdom comes from God's word. The Lord gives wisdom. He reveals it in his word. Get wisdom. Get instruction. Instruction in the truth by people who know the truth. 
and get understanding. The reason that's such an admonition is nothing you desire compares to wisdom. Not precious gold, not precious stone. Matter of fact, Proverbs chapter 8 says nothing you desire compares with her. Because wisdom is God's view on life, what matters and how to get there. Navigation, to know where you are and how to achieve the things that matter the most. Wisdom results in something Proverbs calls righteousness. Righteousness is not the imputed righteousness of Christ. It's rightly relating to God, rightly relating to people, and rightly, rightly relating to the world in which you live. Wisdom matters because it enables you to rightly relate in a way that honors God and blesses your life. You want a priceless life, secure wisdom. How do you get that? You get the truth. You buy it at cost, at sacrifice, and whatever you do, you don't compromise it. Our culture doesn't know a lot about truth. 80 plus percent today between the ages of 18 and 25 do not believe there is absolute truth. I believe it's the truth according to me. It's the truth when I believe it is the truth. It's the truth because it works for me. The truth is reality whether it works for you or not. Matter of fact, by biblical definition, the truth is what is. You don't make it up. You don't approve it. It just is. And the beauty of the Bible is it reveals the truth. And we just sang about the truth, but the basis of those songs is rooted in the revelation of God through the written word of God and the revelation of the personal incarnated word of God, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And our university is about teaching every discipline through the lens of truth. And uh, that's what I have the honor of cultivating and supporting. It's a great education, but it is governed by the truth. And the truth matters. Can you say amen to that? Amen. That's, that's the difference maker. And uh, we have great, great privileges there. And, and you know this probably, but it's not just about teaching math, science, history, kinesiology. It's about helping young people take those disciplines and steward them for the glory of God. We educate and we equip so that there are God glorifiers in the world today. Young men and women who are kingdom influencers. They promote the good news of the God who saves, the God who is worthy of worship. And so there's a plethora of partners, multiples of people who serve there, not because they need a job, but because they're investing in young people who are going to change the world. And that's our conviction. And part of what we do, and I want to do it today, so turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And I want to, I want to seek to establish a conviction. Our theme in chapel of this year is real Christianity. That's the big idea. And underneath of that is a subtitle saying the lifestyle and convictions of a biblical Christian. Because everything that presents itself as Christianity is not Christianity. To say you're a Christian is a statement. It's only validated by the evidence of your life. Christianity can mean many things to many people. I served in the South. Everybody's a Christian in the South. But everybody's not a Christian. Definitions matter. There is real Christianity. It's not just a claim that, yes, I believe Jesus is God. I believe he died on a cross. Lots of people believe he died on a cross. There's a whole group of Catholics worldwide who believe that. But Christianity is more than acknowledging that. Real Christianity has a lifestyle and a biblical conviction attached to it. I want to challenge you today, not just you as a church corporately, but I want to challenge you individually to a conviction that matters. It's the evidence of real Christianity. Biblical Christianity has certain beliefs that are non-negotiable. This is one that you need to own. Two out of 10 Christians in a survey recently said, this is my conviction. We have a lot of young people who come up to or come to the Master's University and they have had convictions sown. Parents sow convictions. Churches sow convictions. But the reason college is so important is that convictions be, that are sown 
are established or rejected. That's why I believe in Christian education so much. You want your young people to be in a culture that supports the convictions you've invested your life to sow. You want to have your children in a place where people partner with you to establish those convictions. Establishing convictions mean those convictions become their convictions. Freestanding moral agents who say, you know what, I believe some things, and they're mine. They're not my parents, they're not my churches, they're my convictions. Here's a conviction that two out of ten Christians in a significant national survey said, I own this one. I'm not just giving lip service to it, I own it. Which means eight out of ten Christians don't own it. What is that conviction? I have a personal responsibility and a commitment personally to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with my neighbors and friends. This conviction matters to God, and this conviction matters to your neighbors and friends. Why? Because 50% of the people who come to faith in Christ come through a family member or a friend. The Jesus we sang about is real. The work that he did is the only work that saves. 50% of the people that come to know him and his saving work come because of you, your neighbors, your friends. Most Christians say, I know I'm supposed to share the gospel. I know the Great Commission. You know what I mean by the Great Commission, right? Jesus Christ has, has been resurrected from the grave. He meets his disciples in Matthew 28 on a mountainside. And this is what he said to them. All authority is given to me in heaven and on the earth. Nobody trumps me in commander authority or power capacity. And out of that supernatural, divine, unmatched authority, I'm going to give you marching orders. I'm leaving, and now I am commissioning. You know this, but I want to remind you. What did the commander-in-chief say? Go and make disciples. Make disciples is the main verb. It's a present tense verb. It means this is the way you are to habitually live as a disciple maker. There are two participles that follow that main verb. Participles modify verbs telling you something about them. They tell you how you make disciples. You make disciples by baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Implied in that is that they have come to repent and believe. They're baptized publicly as a validation of that belief. They hear the gospel, they receive the gospel, and they give testimony to the gospel. Make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's a second participle. And teach them everything that I've commanded you. Instruct them in the truth. So lead them to faith, have them publicly proclaim their faith, not because it saves them, it validates what God has done for them. And then teach them everything I've commanded commanded you and taught you. That's what I want you to do. And here's an encouragement for you. Lo, it's a way of saying, hey, listen, I'm with you all the way to the end of the age. For what? That. Now, there's another participle. It precedes the main verb. That's the one I want to push on today. The temporal participle that begins this commission is go. And most of the time you hear go, it's imperatival, it's a command, it's a direction. Most of the time when you hear go, you think go. Go to Africa, go to Mexico, go on a missions trip, go. Here's how the temporal participle should be understood. While you are going. Oh yeah, you're going, but while you're going in the traffic pattern of your life, where you work, where you go to school, the neighborhood you live in, the stores you shop in, the vacations you take, while you go, make disciples. 
Share the gospel, see people receive the gospel. Once they do, train them in the truth. I'm with you all the way to the end of the age. That is the Great Commission. And the missing conviction is that's to me. That's Pastor John, that's your elders, that's your leaders, that's the gifted ones. Those folks who, they're they're good at that. No, that's for every disciple of Jesus Christ. We are missionaries where we live, wherever we go. Can you say amen to that? That's a conviction. It's an undeniable biblical revelation and prescription. The question is, why do eight out of 10 go, no, not me. My church does that. Those gifted ones do that. I don't do that. Is it fear? Is it, what is it? Well, I want to challenge that today because here's what I want to encourage you to be. A gospel-centric Christian. That means my life revolves around that mission. I want to do three things today. I want to call you to adopt a gospel lifestyle priority. Adopt a gospel lifestyle priority. Number two, I want you to employ a gospel winning mentality. And that'll be the focus of my sermon today. A gospel winning mentality. And then in conclusion, I want to challenge you to avoid, at great cost, avoid forfeiting gospel opportunity. Because you can forfeit it. So read with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. My title is Running to Win. My subtitle is Prioritizing, Promoting, and Protecting Gospel Influence. All right, let's read the key paragraph, and then I'll give you some highlights from the paragraph above because it sets the stage. Verse 24, 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says this to the church at Corinth. Verse 24, do you not know, he's going to use a cultural illustration, athletic illustration, everybody would understand. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Now here's the exhortation. Here's his command as an apostle. Run in such a way that you may win. And I'm reading the New American Standard in case you Wonder why the words in your Bible may be a bit different. Verse 25, and everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I buffet my body, I make it my slave, lest possibly, after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Run to win, and this is what it takes. That's the substance of 24 through 27. I want to back up and read the preceding paragraph and help you see what he's talking about. What do you mean, run to win? Christianity's a race, races are about winning. What's winning have to do in this context? What am I running for? Well, in order to know that, you need to see the preceding paragraph. Because you say running to win. Live a great Christian life. Win the prize of life. What kind of prize is he talking about? Well, in order to understand that, you need to go back to verse 19. He's going to use the word win four times. And in the last statement, he's going to substitute the word win for another word which will illuminate what he means by winning. Now, a bit of context before I read it to you. Paul is defending his apostleship. Chapter 9 is, you ought to treat me with regard. You treat other missionary apostles with regard. Shouldn't you treat me with regard more? I'm the person who has led you to faith. I have privileges as an apostle. There ought to be care and concern. He says, as a matter of fact, any missionary, any good news sharer is worthy of support from those they minister to. Matter of fact, he says over in verse 12 of chapter 9, if others, verse 11, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much that we should reap material things from you? 
Verse 12, if others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we do not use this right, but we endure all things that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel. Verse 14, so also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Verse 15, but I have used none of these things. Verse 18, what then is my reward? Let me tell you what he's saying. He's saying, listen, I have a right to be supported. I'm choosing not to. I'm forfeiting legitimate privileges so that there'll be no hindrance to the message for which I live my life. I'm forfeiting privileges for greater opportunity. That's what he's saying. Verse 18, what then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. Forfeiting privileges or rights for greater opportunity. That's the context. Verse 19, For though I am free from all men, because I have no material obligation, nobody's paying me anything. For though I am free from all men, I want you to watch what he says. This is an example. This is an apostolic testimonial. I have made myself a slave to all. I have chosen to enslave myself to everybody. Verse 19, that I might win the more. That's the first time you're going to see the word win. Arist active indicative. At a point in time, I decided I'm going to live for them and not for myself. I've made myself a slave to win them. I'm doing what I otherwise might not do in order to reach them, win them. Verse 20, to the Jews, I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. There it is again. So that those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win, there it is again, those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law. That's the non-Jew, the Gentile. Though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. In other words, I live according to the law of holiness. I live according to the law of love, the law of Christ that I might win those who are without law. Verse 22, to the weak. This has to do with maybe weak in conviction, weak in station, weak in emotion, weak in condition. They're weak. To the weak, I became weak. That I might, here it is again, win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I may by all means, now win is substituted for a new word because this is what winning is about that I may by all means save some now listen to what he just said my lifestyle priority is about the gospel I have enslaved myself to every man such that I am a servant who has surrendered their will to serve the will of another to the end that they might be saved one I played lots of sports in high school, football, basketball, and baseball, went to college playing football. I love to play. But I never once have taken up jogging. I have no interest in running for nothing. That's what I call jogging. (laughs) I frankly do not understand. Ball in my hand, get that. Don't get running for nothing. When I was a senior at Liberty University, where I graduated before I went to seminary, I was walking towards the student center, and a lot of the students who did jog for run for nothing were running. (laughs) And I noticed this girl running. Do you know what happened to Harry Walls? He became a jogger. (laughs) I'm not exaggerating. But I wasn't running for nothing. I was running to win. I'm married to Karen today, and that's where it started. You see, here's the illustration. If there's a motivation out of a love and concern for somebody, a desire to connect and communicate with somebody, you're going to do things otherwise you would never do. Paul said, if you're Jew, I'm going to become like a Jew. I'm not going to trade away the gospel core of my life. 
He had, he had Timothy circumcised. His, Timothy's mom was a Jew. His dad was a Gentile. He had Timothy circumcised, not because circumcision meant anything. He says that in chapter 7, verse 19 of this book. Circumcision is nothing. It doesn't save. You don't have to be circumcised. Why did he have Timothy circumcised, Acts chapter 16? It was like giving Timothy dual citizenship. So wherever Paul went and Timothy went, they could go where Jews go without a hindrance to the gospel. That's what he means. I become all things to all men. I do what I can do to avoid any obstacle. To the people without the law, well, Titus, one of his disciples in Galatians chapter 2, he makes the bold claim, Paul, I didn't have him circumcised. Because the issue in Galatia where he was doing ministry to the Gentiles there had all to do with if to be saved, do you have to be circumcised and do you have to keep the law of Moses? Answer, no. Titus, my teammate, is not going to be circumcised because I don't want to misrepresent that truth at all. I become what I need to become without compromise, listen to me, in order to connect and communicate without a barrier. To a weak person, I become weak. What does that mean? I'm sympathetic. I'm not judgmental. This guy may have real problems with certain things. That's okay. I'm not focused on the problem. I'm not going to trade away my Christian core, but I'm going to connect and communicate because my life is about building a bridge. We sang a song earlier, or uh, was it Ron referenced First uh, Peter chapter 2, where it says that we are a part of the royal priesthood. We are a chosen race, that we can proclaim the excellencies of God. Do you know the word priesthood? comes from a Latin priest, comes from the Latin word pontifex. Pontifex means bridge builder. Priests are builders of bridges. They connect people to God and God to people. That's what we are, bridge builders. We are a royal, because we're of the king's household, a royal priesthood. We are missionary bridges. And Paul said, I'll do whatever. I'll run for nothing. No, not really. I'm running to win. I'll, I'll adjust my life for that purpose. Whether it's convenient, not inconvenient, or convenient, fun, or not fun, rewarding or not rewarding, that's irrelevant. My life is a gospel-centric life. And I do all of it. My whole life revolves around that priority. Verse 23, I do all things for the sake of the gospel that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Let me tell you what that means. So I can share in the riches of somebody else's transaction with God. I have a relationship with God, Paul says. But when somebody comes to faith, when they're one to Christ, I get to enter into their joy. I was in Bellingham, Washington a month ago preaching and a gentleman came up to, the, to me after the church service like this. He said, Harry, I want you to tell Dr. Harl, Carl Hargrove, Michael says hello, I'm indebted. This is an older man, 60s. Dr. Hargrove is the dean of our seminary. He had been up there preaching earlier in the summer. He said, tell Carl, and then he couldn't talk. His lips began to quiver, his eyes got full, when he finally could get the words out, he said, tell Carl, when he preached the gospel, I heard it, and my life has changed because of it. He said, I'll never be, to be the same, and I owe him everything. I said, Michael, I'll tell Carl. I just wish Carl was here to see it. Because that's the fellow partaker part of when you become a gospel conduit, a bridge builder, when you see somebody go from death to life without hope and without God to with God and eternal hope, that is a transaction that is priceless. You can't be a bigger player in anybody's life. The, the firemen can rescue people and buildings, but they can't save someone eternally unless they're a Christian fireman. There are people in my community, we're all Southern California, we're all Californians, this is not Southern California, but in Southern California, when we had those fires a year and a half ago, there were signs everywhere, thank you, thank you, thank you. 
because somebody saved a structure, somebody saved a house. Let me tell you what will trump that thank you. The welcome party in heaven when you arrive and the people that you've shared the gospel with are standing there to greet you. That will happen. Paul said, I do my whole life to save people. Not from fire, temporal, but eternal. Adopt a gospel lifestyle priority. Paul's personal testimony is a challenge to every Christian. You say, well, he's an apostle. He's supposed to say that. Just like you are. You're a preacher. That's what you guys do. Well, then tell me why he turns the corner in verse 24 and says, you run the win. Because it's a gospel lifestyle priority for every Christian. It's for you. It's for me. So, number two. I want to challenge you to employ a gospel-winning mentality. Gospel-winning mentality. How do you do that? Because what I don't want to do today is leave you guilty without some way to apply it. Because most Christians don't share their faith. And they need a way to share their faith. They need a strategy. They need a mentality. A run-to-win mentality. So I'm going to give you five things. Number one, you need to make a decision. Number two, you need to exercise discipline. Number three, you need to have direction. Number four, you need to have some strategic design. And number five, you need to dominate the things that prevent the goal. So five Ds. Let's unpack it together. I want to encourage you to employ a gospel-winning mentality. Verse 24, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Implication is the goal is to get the prize, not just to run. There's no participation award. No trophy for everybody. One person gets the prize, that's the winner. He's using an athletic illustration, a cultural one. Corinth was at annual games, just like the Olympic Games. Not every four years, but annually in Corinth, there would be games and there would athletes come. Everybody knew about the races. They knew about the prize giving. That's why he's saying it. The goal isn't to run, to have on the Christian uniform. The goal is to win. What's winning about? Seeking the lost. Jesus said, I come to seek and to save that which is lost. I'm commissioning you to do what I came to do. Run to win. Follows that verse 24. Here's the imperative. This is present, active. This is a habit. Keep on running, everyday running, run to win. That's a prescription. That's an address to your will. It's as if it's, you're going to run this race? Run it to win it. You need to have a resolved, here's the way I'd like you to hear it. Here's the first ingredient. You have a resolved determination. You've made a decision. I'm winning. I'm running to win. I'm not just running to play. I'm running to win. A burning, passionate desire that says, I will not be denied. Are you Golden State fans up here? Most of you? Okay. Why did Kevin Durant leave Oklahoma City? He won an MVP there. Why did he come? He wanted to what? Win. It wasn't about the money. It was about the goal for which you play the game. Why did LeBron leave Cleveland to go to Miami? To win. I'm glad he came to Los Angeles. (laughs) We might win. (laughs) You know why? Because every great athlete who's a winner has an engine that says, I'm not just playing. I have a goal to win. Every great athlete has that. Every Olympic successful athlete has that. Every Christian who has a gospel lifestyle priority needs that. I'm going to win somebody to Christ. I'm determined. I'm not just going through my Christian drills, coming to church. I'm running to win. Resolve determination number two. Rigorous discipline. Notice what he says in verse 25. Everyone, notice that, everyone who's in the race, who wants to win, everyone, no exceptions, who competes in the games 
exercises, here it is, self-control. The Greek word means severe discipline, high restraint. It involves two things, rigorous regimen and rigorous restraint. Things I do, training, things I exercise and training in order to compete, positive things, and things that I don't do in order to maximize. I don't want anything to inhibit me. So I say yes first, and I say no also. Rigorous discipline involves a regimen and restrictions or restraint. Things I say yes to, I will. What do I mean by that? Well, if you're going to train to be a great Olympic athlete, Michael Phelps, who may have been the greatest swimmer in all time in Olympic history, swam six hours a day, six days a week, 50 miles a week. All four years until he got to compete in the Olympic Games. Mary Lou Retton, who won the Olympic gold in gymnastics in Los Angeles in 1984, trained eight hours a day, every day. Hey, go on YouTube and watch LeBron James train. You'll get tired just watching him. LeBron James, as a biomechanic former SEAL coach, teaches him how to do the exercises correctly. He has a masseuse to make sure that he has a rub down properly, massaging those expensive muscles. He has a hyperbaric chamber where he oxygenates his muscles after a workout. He has a hot tub, an ice tub. He has a personal masseuse. He spends $1.5 million every year to train. That's commitment. I'm going to win. What are your gospel-sharing disciplines? What verses have you memorized? What tools do you have in your arsenal? How many training classes have you been in so that you know what to say, when to say it? I'm reading a book now by Greg Kukul. You ought to pick it up if you're interested in this. It's called Tactics. How to share the gospel in a non-threatening way, diplomatic way, so you don't have adversaries but ultimate allies. He has the Columbo method where you come in and you look like you're totally incompetent. (laughs) Therefore, no defenses are up. You share the good news. Tactics, Greg Kukul. He's written another book called Reality, the way things began, the way things end, and everything that's important in between. You need tools. What are your tools? And then you need to say no to things that compete with those tools. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable, Paul said. There are things that we do that an enormous waste of time. Winning athletes say no to things other people say yes to. What do you say no to because it might be an hindrance to the thing that matters the most to you? What habits do you sacrifice? What freedoms do you forfeit? Paul said, I I have rights. I can go do that. I'm just not doing that. I have priorities. It involves saying no. Discipline is to give up the lesser things to do the greater things. No exceptions. They exercise discipline in all things. I'll just give you some, verbal, moral, sexual, noble, visual, musical, things I choose not to do so I don't inhibit my witness. I was having a conversation last night with John and Gwen about the predominance of alcohol in our society and just how it's so pervasive. More people will die. It's the third largest preventable death in the world. 88,000 people will die because of alcohol abuse. 600 assaults, 600,000 assaults will happen because of alcohol. 97,000 assaults, sexual. Alcohol is a problem. It is a gateway drug to every other drug. And theologian Ozzy Osbourne says, you don't drink because you love the taste of Bud Light. You drink because you like the buzz that comes from Bud Light. That's drunkenness, which is prohibited biblically. But who's going to listen to a gospel witness who's compromised? Who's going to listen to a gospel witness who's reckless with their tongue? Who's going to listen to a gospel witness who's careless with their morals or their finances? Who? Paul said, you want to run to win? You got to say yes to the training and no to the things that inhibit the purpose for which you're running. Can you say amen to that? 
You say no to certain things. Number three, direction. And I'm going to put direction and design together. So he goes, oh, oh, before I get to verse 26. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. They get a temporary prize. They, They worked out 11 months of the year to compete for one month, these athletes. They left their home. They went to a training center. They exchanged diet. They exchanged relationship for one 11-month period in order to compete for one month. They said no to a lot. And they did all of that to get a wreath. And it mattered. It was an olive wreath or a pine wreath. And it was more than a wreath. It would be like the Boston Red Sox just won the uh, World Series They put a hat on, World Series champion. That's what the wreath was. I'm the Corinthian Games champion. What that wreath got you was VIP seats every year at the games. What that wreath got you was access to things other people didn't have access to. If you won that race, your family got honored for life. Your city was honored that year. They were blessed and benefited by the emperor because they were the city of a champion. It was a big deal. You know, human awards can be a big deal. But this isn't about how big the deal was at the time you get them. This is about how temporal they are. Anybody know who won the Heisman six years ago? Me neither. It's temporary. You can win awards. It's just not going to last. You run for something eternal. It's never going to stop giving back the beauty and the glory of the prize that you've won, a life transformed. All right, verse 26, direction and design. Here's the third ingredient to a gospel-winning mentality, direction. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. That means I have direction. I'm targeted. I want you to think the word goal. And I want to add a word to the word direction, real direction. Real direction because it ought to be goals are real people. I'm not just Harry, the gospel witness. I'm Harry targeted to certain people, people in my life. I'm not running just to run. I've got an aim. That aim involves people, real people in my life. You have people in your life. I want to give you three things to do today. Number one, I want you to commit yourself to praying for them daily. Name three to five neighbors, friends, classmates, whatever. Real people, real direction. I'm targeted. I'm sovereignly planted. I live in Southern California. You live in Central California. You live in Hollister. I live in Santa Clarita. I'm not responsible for Hollister, and you're not responsible for Santa Clarita. Who are your neighbors? Who are your friends? Who are the people in your life? Name them, and then do three things. Pray for them daily. Bless them in prayer. I use a little acrostic. B, pray for their health, body. Pray for their L, labor, schoolwork, profession. E, pray for their emotional health and stability. S, pray for their social relationships, marriage, family, friends, children. And finally, pray for their spiritual condition. Bless them in prayer daily. Most of you don't know this probably, but you might. 1 Timothy chapter 2 begins this way. Paul, the same writer. First of all, I urge, I exhort, entreaties, prayers, petitions and thanksgivings to be made on behalf of all men. I want you to pray for everybody. And then he says, especially for those in authority, so that we can live, what? A tranquil and quiet life with all dignity and honor. This finds favor. This is pleasing. This is acceptable to God. Now, most of us know we ought to pray for people in authority, but before it says that, it says pray for everybody. Why are you praying for everybody? And why are you praying for the people in authority so you can live a quiet and dignified life? So life is calm? No, the rest of the paragraph tells you why you're praying for everybody and the people who influence your life. Because God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 
There is one mediator between God and man, one bridge, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for many. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer, honorable living, without disharmony and dissension. You know why? Because I want men to pray for their neighbors, their openness everywhere, those in authority for your opportunity so you're not distracted with chaotic life, so you can focus on the things that matter most in life. Praying is central to the gospel. You pray for openness, you pray for opportunity, you pray for them. You'll be shocked at how the door opens. If you begin to pray for somebody, I've got five neighbors I pray for. One of them's Hector, my next door neighbor. Hector knows I pray for him. Ernesto, two doors down, knows I pray for him. They don't mind me praying for them. Hey, Hector, I'm praying for you. Anything you need. People will let you pray for them. Pray for them daily. Number two, care for them practically. Look for ways to serve them. Look. Every unsaved person needs a Christian in their life. They just don't know when. Look for the opportunity for the when. Where you can serve, you can encourage, you can help, you can support. Make yourself a slave to the need of a neighbor. Or a classmate. Or a workmate. By name, I'm running with direction. Real direction, real people. Thirdly, pray for them daily. Care for them practically. And then look for the gospel sharing opportunity. Intentional. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. Christians like the whole idea, I'll be nice to you. But it's more than being nice to somebody. It's more than praying for somebody. It's actually sharing the good news that saves. You know truth other people don't know. If I took a survey in your little neighborhood, I'd be shocked if I found 10 people that knew the gospel. Knew it, knew it. Because most people don't know the gospel. They're trying to do better than bad. Trying to be nicer than the other guy. They're mostly good. There's a lot of ways to heaven. As long as I do what I believe, I'm going to get there. True or not true? Not true. What you know is there's only one way to heaven. Nobody's good. Not a single one. There's none righteous. There's nobody who seeks God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We know the wages of sin is death. We know we can't make ourselves right enough with the one who's perfect. So that's why Jesus came, who lived the perfect life, died as a substitutionary death, paying a debt we couldn't pay, and he gifts righteousness, perfect righteousness, not for work, but for belief, like a gift. I don't earn it. I don't deserve it. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, right? Do your neighbors know that? Probably not. The deceiver deceives. You have everybody and their brother parading their version of the gospel if they preach it at all. You know it. Share it. Hey, the minimum, you can say, this is what happened to me. I, I like this method. So what church do you go to? Most people been to church sometime, someplace. So what did they teach you about the gospel? I'm just curious to know. A lot of churches say they preach it, but I'd like to hear what your church said. The gospel, you know, the good news about how you can go to heaven and have a relationship with God. You can ask that question. That's what their church said. It's not what they say. But it gets the conversation started, which leads me to the second thing. Well, the second part of this part, the fourth ingredient is design. Okay? And I'm going to say relevant design or realistic design. What do I mean by that? Paul says, I box, I'm not just beating the air, which means I'm not just flailing. What he's trying to say is, I have tactics. I have strategy. What are your gospel sharing tactics? I want to encourage you. This is doable. Realistic design or relevant design means take who God has made you to be and leverage it for the good news. I'm a car guy. I ride motorcycles. I like cars. Some of you think cars are an appliance. You like electric. Electric is a car with no soul. Do you feel the difference? Okay. Now, if you're a car guy or you're not a car guy and you're hanging out with car guys, what are the chances they're talking to you if you think a car is an appliance? No chance. 
Motorcyclists talk to motorcyclists. Car guys talk to car guys. Hunting people talk to hunting people. Surfers talk to surfers. Leverage your passions. You're not a car guy. I'm a car guy. That's my passion. I grew up that way. I can relate to car guys. If I get home, I'm going to drive the curvy rows home, so I may not get home in time to do this today. But on a Sunday afternoon, it's not uncommon for me to be up on the Angeles crest with the car guys and the motorcycle guys. That's my crowd. And you know what? The vast majority of them are lost. Jay Leno was up there a month ago. Jay's not a Christian. But I can talk to him about his turbine car because I'm a car guy. Figure out what you are, what passion. You might be a computer person. I, my, my children's pastor at my church was a game guy, board games. He joined a board game club. Anybody board game? I, I, that shocks me. I don't even. Yeah. <laughs> my wife's into art and photography, and she's a horse person. We have horses ride by our house every day. Guess who can build a relationship with horse people? My wife. She loves them. She'll shed a tear watching a horse go by. I shed tears for all the money I spent on horses over the years <laughs> serving that passion. Right, let me bottom line with relevant direction, a relevant design. Leverage what God has put in you. Natural talents, natural passions, supernatural gifts, providentially planning you in a particular place, and be a gospel witness right there in a world you already love. Talk to people who will talk to you. I've led more people to Christ over motorcycles than any other single fishing hole in my life. You need a fishing hole. You need a place where people relate and talk, not because it's gospel-centric. You're gospel-centric. It revolves around a passion and a priority for people. Relevant design says, designed for me and the people in my life whom I'm responsible for, because I'm responsible for them. You're not going to be on the Angeles Crest at Newcomb's Ranch, but I'll be. That's my fishing hole. I'm praying for three high-performance shops in the city of Santa Clarita. A Porsche guy, a Ferrari guy, and a big block Chevy guy. Oscar, Rafi, Robert, by name. You know why? I'm in their life. I'm a Christian. I know what they don't know. They need what I have. I'm looking for that opportunity. That's a gospel lifestyle priority. Can you say amen to that? Amen. All right, let me, let me finish up with this. So that's real direction, relevant design, people, strategy, tactic, leverage who you are and the places you go. I go to the same businesses, same restaurants. I want to learn their names. I want to know who they are. I can eat a lot of places. I'm an equal opportunity eater. <laughs> but I eat at certain places because I want to know those people. I want them to know me. That's why I'm alive. And that's why you're here. You're a light in a dark place, a fallen world. Be a light. Last thing, relentless, ruthless domination. Read this verse with me, and we'll finish with one illustration. Verse 27, the fifth ingredient, domination. I'm going to say ruthless and relentless. I buffet my body. You hear that? I love that word, buffet. It's one of my favorite words in the English language. But it is not this word. It is buffet. I don't know what your Bible says. Mine says buffet. A word about buffet. The word buffet is apiazo, I, hupo, over the eye. It had to do with a person getting somebody on the ground and pummeling them into submission, beating them about the face. About the only place you see this is on the playground or in cage MMA fighting, where guys get somebody on the ground and they're just, it's too violent for me to watch, and I played football. It's just like boom, 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 until what? They tap out. That's this word. Beat yourself about the face. Do whatever it takes. Be ruthless. Buffet your body. Make it your slave. Why? So that you're not disqualified from the opportunity. Avoid forfeiting gospel opportunity. Watch what he says. Lest possibly after I preach to others, I myself should be disqualified. Adakamas. I break the rules. I lose the opportunity. 
Paul wrote, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to what? The rules. We all have our stories, whether they're Lance Armstrong and the Tour de France or some pro athlete who takes steroids or something, they break the rules. Paul said, Buffet ruthlessly dominate your body, present tense, make it your slave every day relentlessly. Do you have Chuck E. Cheese around here? Do you have Whack-A-Mole, that game? And you know which one I'm talking about? I used to have, my children I have two. We used to go to Chuck E. Cheese as a reward thing, and Whack-A-Mole was my son's favorite thing. Whack-A-Mole is you put money in, you get a hammer, and these little prairie dogs pop up, and your goal is to hit as many of them as possible. This is Whack-A-Mole the flesh. Every time the flesh pops up, you whack it. You ruthlessly, relentlessly, till it taps out, dominate it, lest you become disqualified. Paul said, Paul said, I could be disqualified. Paul can be disqualified. Harry can be disqualified. Ruthless domination. What are the habits that hinder the gospel witness in your life? Deal with them. Close with a personal illustration where God punctuated this priority to him in my life. I served on the board of the Masters University. As already said, I'm pastoring in Alabama. I would connect in Houston on the way to LAX. One of my connections in Houston a few years ago, the jetway was backed up. People were waiting. I was waiting to load. I'm not a stalker, but I do watch folks. And I was watching a couple, a young couple, who obviously liked each other. It was not inappropriate, but it was just really sweet. And I'm watching them relate and just enjoying their affection for each other and noted that. And I got on the airplane, and as I'm loading into 14C, which is on the aisle, three seats on each side, I noticed that she moved into the row across from me and sat in the middle seat, but he did not follow her into row 14. He continued towards the back of the plane. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. Maybe they connected in Houston in a whole different way. And so I, I, I had that thought, and I'm getting settled in, and then I hear her say to the guy on the aisle across from me, hey, will you trade seats with my husband so we can fly together to Los Angeles? And he said, oh, sure. And he starts to get up, and then it was like a light bulb went off, and he said, does he have an aisle seat? And she said, no, he has a middle seat. And he plopped down, and he said, oh, no, not for a middle seat. Now, I understood that. The dreaded middle seat is a shrunken seat designed to create pain. Yeah, you don't have the window, you don't have the aisle, you're stuck, and it's tiny. So I got it. She didn't get it. Her countenance fell. She turned to the guy to the window and said, hey, will you trade with my husband so we can fly together? He heard the option, middle seat, and he said, no, not for a middle seat. She went from sad, my interpretation of her countenance, to hurt. But what's interesting is just in a few minutes, she left her seat, went towards the back, and guess who got in her seat? Husband. My interpretation, I'm not riding with guys like that. Well, I'm watching that happen and interpreting my own way. And I had a thought go through my mind like somebody said something. You can fix this. And it shocked me. I don't normally talk to myself, but I, I heard that thought. And it was almost like, what? What do you mean I can fix this? You can fix this. How can I fix this? And then I thought, I can fix this. I can trade with the guy on the aisle. He'll trade with me because I'm on the aisle. And then I can trade with her so she can sit with him. I can fix this. Now, I'm ashamed to say this. I don't want to fix this. I, it's only two and a half hours. They'll be together in Los Angeles. I need to study. I like the aisle. And then it was like somebody was talking to me again. So you won't do this for me? And it shocked me. And that certainly wasn't going to be the enemy. Lord, are you asking me? If you're asking me, of course. What good is a disobedient preacher? I was preaching in chapel the next day at Masters. So I leaned over said to the guy in, on the aisle, 14D, I say, will you swap with me? He looked at me funny, as you would expect. I said, swap with me so I can swap with her so they can ride together. He said, oh, sure. So he's getting into my seat. Happy husband, or the husband's looking at me like he's incredulous. And I 
I said, I'm, I'm trading with your wife so you guys can ride together. I heard of her desire to do that. And he, he said, okay. So he starts to get up to get his wife. I said, no, I'll get her. I got to go back there anyway. What seat she in? 18B. What's her name in that? I said, okay, I'll go get her. Thanks, man. So I walk back, three seats, and that's in the middle. I look in, and they all look up. What's this guy doing looking into our row? And then I used her name. Hey, Annette. Her eyes got big, like, how do I know you? Do I know you? I said, Annette, I'm 14C. I traded with 14D, so you can ride with your husband. We're trading seats if you'd like to. She got up so fast. She, she hugged me in the aisle like she had won the grand prize. She went down and sat with her husband. I crawled into 18B. <laughs> I thought to myself, okay, that's good. She's happy. I'm going to be happy. I texted my wife. I said, honey, I don't know why I even did this. I said, honey, if the plane goes down, I'm not in 14C, I'm 18B. <laughs> and then I typed these words, God reassigned me. And as soon as I said, I typed those words, it was like, he did reassign me. I'm supposed to be here. And it's like all my spiritual sensors turned on. I'm going, gospel mission. So I look at acquiring targets, target to the left. <laughs> Young gal, she takes out a book. She opens the book. Well, the title of the book on the front was How to Be a Praying Wife by Stormy O'Marty. And she opens the book. I kind of glance over, dedicated to so-and-so. I don't remember a name from somebody in her prayer group, hoping she'll be the Christian woman that she should be. And not her. So I go target acquisition, too, to the right. College guy. He's got Beats headphones on. We haven't even pulled away from the gate. He's leaning up against the window with a pillow trying to sleep. Well, if it is him, it's not now. Maybe this is just an obedience test. And just, I see out of the corner of my eye, happy husband waving at me, giving me the thumbs up. They're looking back. And I'm going, it's good, it's good, it's okay. And so maybe it's just being happy in the middle seat, doing what I'm supposed Maybe it's an obedience test. So we pull out from the gate, we're heading down the taxiway, and happy husband's signaling again. And I'm thinking to myself, it's okay, dude, it's really okay. <laughs> but he's not doing this. He's turned around and he's pointing to 15C. 15C is an aisle seat. 15C is empty. A and B are full on a very full plane. I can't tell you that it was totally full, but there weren't any seats in front of me empty except an aisle seat, 15C. One row back from where I started. And the happy husband's pointing. And I'm going, ah, now I'm doing this. <laughs> I'm getting excited because I'm thinking... God's going to show me favor. He just wanted to see if I would obey, and then I can still sit on the aisle. Now, you can't move while you're taxiing. You know that, right? So now I'm praying, not for a safe liftoff, but that that guy in the middle will not move over and come to his senses. <laughs> when we get to altitude, the seatbelt sign goes off. I uh, quickly gather my things, crawl over, saved wife, head down the aisle, plop into 15C. <sighs> that was interesting. That's what I'm thinking. And there's the happy couple. And I'm thinking, you know what? Gospel mission. There they are. But I don't want to manipulate my good deeds, so I'll wait for an opening. You know what? They never looked back one more time. After we greeted, they never one time looked back and said anything to me. One half hour out of Los Angeles, the victim of the middle seat, leans over and says, can I borrow your Bible? I said, sure. I said, what do you need? I looked down. He's reading Tacitus, a Roman historian who wrote at the time of Christ. I hadn't noticed. I said, you're reading Tacitus? He said, yeah, I'm trying to find out if Jesus is a historical person, really. And I wanted to compare something in the Bible. And then he said this. He said, and I'm seeking Jesus. Now, you're feeling what I felt. You're kidding. I know Jesus. He's real. <laughs> and not only is he real, he's seeking you. He ping-ponged me from 14C to 18B <laughs> to get me to 15C because I would have never moved back one row. 
His name is Cameron. He's a creative producer for a television show. He lives in Orange County, family of four, two young children. He's going to the Lutheran church at that time, trying to find out if Jesus is real because he needs something he doesn't have. I told Cameron everything I knew about the real Jesus. Every apologetic I knew, the plain gospel. And when we concluded, and by the way, when you're a gospel lifestyle witness, you don't have to close the deal. You have to cooperate with God for your part of the deal. Some sow, some plow, some water, and some reap, and they all receive the whole reward. So just do your part. I did my part. Cameron, when we landed, we shook hands, gave him some information, some things that he needed, and I said, Cameron, I'll be praying for you that you'll meet the Jesus you're seeking because he is seeking you. I'm glad we got to fly together today. We shook hands. We left the airplane. I'm walking down the concourse to baggage claim. I don't know if I was actually touching the floor because it was the most immense sense of mission and purpose in life I can remember. And I've had some neat moments, but nothing trumped that moment. So I'm floating down the concourse, headed to baggage claim. And the ladies in front of me, one of them turned around and said, uh, thank you. And I thought she meant because I helped her load the concrete blocks up into the baggage area. But they were in 14 with me where I started and I helped them get their blocks up and get their blocks down. And so I thought she was saying, thank you for helping me. And I said, no, no problem. I'm happy to help. But what did you have in those bags is what I said. And then she said this. She said, no. She said, thank you for sharing the gospel with that guy. I said, you were listening? She said, oh, yeah, I heard the whole thing. She said, I was praying. He's going to get saved. And then she said this. She said, you made my trip. And I said, you know what? He made our trip. Because there's no mission better to be on than investing your life for the sake of the master. Amen. That was the best weight for a bag I've ever had in my life. That was when God communicated undeniably to me, Harry, this matters. I don't need you, but I want to use you. Invest your life. Don't spend it. God desires it, and people need it. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Lord Jesus, thank you for the time today. Thank you for the opportunity to bear witness from your word and from a life-to-life -life illustration. Lord, my prayer for this Bible church in Hollister, California, that it will not just be a gospel witness collectively, but it'll be a gospel witness in every member's life intentionally. Glorify yourself. You were the seeker and the savior of the lost. Help us to run to win. In Jesus' name, amen.